Jesus fans? Well, I know you. Okay. How? I want to get Luis up here. Come here. Which of the ones that ra- raise your hand? Who raised your hands? Okay. How well do you know Elvis trivia? I need the best one of you because Luis is going to come up here. She's going to be a one. Yeah. <laughs> no, Presley. Come on, I need one of you. Come on. It's real simple. It's one question. Come on. You won't know nothing. Ansel's going to come up? Okay, we're going to play a little quick um, quiz. All right? And see who's, who's uh, the best Elvis um, trivia person in here. Okay, come up here. All right, so I don't have a buzzer, so you're just going to have to raise your hand. Okay? So here we go. Just one question. That's all we're going to do. All right? One question. I don't want to make it too hard. Okay? All right, so here you go. Which two songs of Elvis's songs, okay, uh, which two songs were written by songwriter Mark James? Come on. You ain't nothing but a hound dog? Nope. Nope. Uh, what? Out blue. Get off the while you're the range. what? <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. Oh, come on. You guys are you're just. I'll give you a hint. One of them was his last number one hit. Suspicious Minds? Yep. There we go. All right. So good job, everyone. Let's give Louisa. Uh, the other one is Always on My Mind. There you go. So, okay, so if you didn't know, James, um, Mark James, he was a songwriter. Um, a guy started down in, like, Texas, Houston area, and he wrote a lot of songs. Um, but he moved up to Memphis, and he started writing songs for um, a, a, a group there. And Elvis came back. He was coming back for his comeback album. 68. Yep, in 68. And so he starts recording this. Well, James had written this song where it was Suspicious Minds. And he said, Elvis is coming back. He needs a really good song because um, Mark James had written it and recorded it and released it, and it went nowhere. No, nothing happened to it. But he said, this is such a good song. Elvis needs to hear this. So he started getting his producer friends that were working at the same label saying, hey, you need to have him hear this because what Elvis needs is he needs a a song that is a mature rock song. And so that song became Elvis's last number one hit. Um, so it just took off. What James said, though, is when he first heard the recording, he said, this is not very good. Um, it's too slow. And then he heard when it actually came out, he's like, this song is amazing. And so, but the song comes from actually James's life. He had his first wife, so, um, and... He had, so he got married, and he had his friend, his childhood friend, which was a girl that he still had feelings for. Well, his wife always had suspicions that the two were off on the thing. So out of that, out of that situation, he wrote Suspicious, uh, suspicious Minds. Now, I keep wanting to say Suspicious Lines. But um, so that's what's going on. And, um, and so what we're going to talk about today is mistrust, Okay. Um, I just thought that was an interesting piece of trivia um, for you guys.
that you can now know where suspicious minds come from. All right. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Judges chapter six. Um, we're going to start going into the book uh, to Gideon's story, and just to let you know, we'll probably be three weeks into Gideon's story. He has one of the most massive parts of Judges, um, so we'll be spending a lot of time in his story. All right. Because I think there's, there's just a few things. There's a lot, Gideon's story is really interesting. And there's a lot of ins and outs about it. Um, but we're, again, we're focusing on the big picture. So we're only going to look at a couple things from his life. But before we get into Judges, let's, let's tie everything into what's going on, right? Because the purpose of summer studies is to see the big picture of a book, right? And so we start talking about how Judges, it's the, the small version of the entire scripture theme of how... Um, when we're not faithful, God still is, right? That's basically this, the theme of Judges, that even though humanity is unfaithful to God, God is still there to reach out, to seek and save the lost. He's still there. But what we'll see is, as we're going through, and you're going to see it today, there comes a point where that seeking and saving the lost, there will come a point where that ends. Now, we're not at that point yet. But in the book of Judges, you're going to see that there is a point, and we will get to that point somewhere down the line. But the first thing we need to know is the overarching theme of Judges is the overarching theme of Scripture, which is God is faithful even when we're not, okay? So that's kind of the first week that we talked about. But in the following weeks, um, we started talking about these other things where um, right relationship comes from with God. So God desires a right relationship with His people, and that comes through obedience, through trusting, through utilizing our gifts, and walking in the Spirit. So what God wants is, He wants a people that actually follow Him. Because what we're seeing in Judges is we're going to see the cycle, right? The cycle is sin, consequence, crying out or turning, saving action, and rest. Right? That's the cycle. And repeat. Rinse and repeat. Right? But the thing is, is through it, God wants us to be His ideal, which is, that was the Othniel, right? And what we saw was obedience. We saw trusting. We saw the utilization of gifts. And we saw walking in the Spirit. And so what does God want from us? Right there. Okay? So that's what He wants. Does that happen? Not all the time. In Judges, it gets worse and worse and worse, right? And we said that Judges isn't just a cycle where the Israel ends up at the same point, but it's a spiral down where they keep getting worse and worse. Because, as you'll see today, there's, not, there's more self-focus than there is God-focus, right? So then last week we kind of... Is that, that it? Or we got one more? We got one more. All right. Um, what we see, saw last week is we started seeing the breaking of what the judge's role was. And you're going to see more in Gideon's life, and it's going to just get worse and worse as we go down. But what, we'll, what we see is that when God's people aren't obedient, that sends out a ripple effect throughout all of society. So I'm going to step out, bless you, I'm going to step out on a limb here and say the church hasn't done a very good job, and because the church hasn't done a very good job at representing Christ, look at our society. Okay, Because you know all the things in our society right now, all the transgenderism, all the homosexuality stuff, all, all these things, all the political strife, 
all the, the societal upheaval, all that stuff, you can trace that back to where the church in the late 1800s here in America was not doing a very good job. And we talked a little bit about that last week, where we talked about how A.B. Simpson was looking around at all these other pastors that were becoming pastors. The reason why they were com- becoming pastors, anyone remember? For the credit, for the prestige. And what was the church doing? Let's send them out. And they were installing these non-called pastors into these positions to build churches that weren't based on Christ. So the reason why we see social problems is because the people of God didn't do their job. That's one reason. There's, there's other reasons. But So what, in order to have societal impact, what does the people of God need to be? They need to be obedient. Right? We need to be seeking holy lives as God is holy. Alright? So, now that we have all that out of the way, we're jumping into Gideon's story, but there's a part in Gideon's story that precedes Gideon. And something that can just get, when we're talking about the judges, we can go, we can go, oh, there's Othniel, oh, there's Ehud, you know, the big guys, the cool ones. Oh, there's Deborah and Barak. And then we go, and there's Gideon. But there's something right before that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So Judges chapter one, uh, chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 24. So here we go. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of, the, of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Malachites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, but they and their camels could not be counted so that they wasted the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. Where am I? While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And why are all these his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that this is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. 
And he said, I will, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour, out, pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Bizarites. All right. So this is where we are. All right. So we talked about Othniel. We talked about Eha. talked about Deborah and Brock. We um, briefly mentioned Shamgar, uh, yeah, Shamgar. And now we're in Gideon, right? Right above, right um, just above the middle. All right. We're good. Everyone see where we are? What? Um, I did. All right. So what we just read, there's two parts to it. All right. The first part is the cycle part. And we, we start out in the basically the same cycle, right? So the cycle begins with Israel's sin, right? The consequence of that, which is the Midianites, and then, what should happen next? Israel should call out to God. But that doesn't happen. The next thing that happens, and we've got to pay attention to what happens, is they go up to the mountains and they start going into caves and building strongholds to keep their food and their cattle away from the Mennonites. That's huge. Because you know what that tells us? Well, they're not doing what God, they're not, yeah. So what they're doing is, how can we fix the situation? They have this attitude of, in my own strength, how can I deal with the Midianites? Without God. And so they focus on themselves. They start going up to the caves and they figure, okay, the caves are a good spot. And it's not a bad plan, right? If you look into our history, Right? Just recent history, we had a war in Afghanistan. And one of the hardest things was every, all the, the fighters would go up into the caves, right? And it was hard to locate them. And so they would have to do these bombs, bombings and things like that. Okay, so it's not a bad plan, but does it work? No. And the reason why it doesn't work is because what's happening is they have the sin of their idol worship. Because that's what Judges is. Every sin is usually they've turned to the other gods. So they've turned to these other gods to worship them. So they have that sin on them. And now they're a self-righteous or a self-focused or a prideful sin on top of that. So now what's happening, what we saw in the past is they would do these sins... And then they would turn to God, right? They would get the consequences, but they would turn to God. And God would save them. But now they're turning to themselves. They're turning to themselves. So they start worshiping these gods. It's not working for them. So they say, how can I do this myself? 
And it's not until after that doesn't work that they turn to God. And I've had conversations with people where they will say things like, um, well, me and God have an understanding. <laughs> like, I can do my own thing, and then God's okay with that. Or they'll say things like, oh, I've heard this from believers, well, now that I'm saved, I can kind of do what I want. And the idea there, it's the same attitude. In fact, there's a religion out there. I'm just going to read to you one of the, from their, their book real quick. This is what they said. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So that the idea there is you do everything you can to fix yourself, to become righteous, to become saved. And then God will say, okay, now I'll let you in the rest of the way. That's the same attitude as these Israelites. I'll do everything I can, and I'll put God as my last resort. When God should be first thing. Have you ever done this? Where it's like, you get in a situation, and you're like, okay, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. And then you go, oh, and God. You know, it's really easy to get into this, this situation, to get into this mindset where, where God becomes secondary to what we are going to do. It's really simple. And so what does God send them? Hey, David, Navi, please stop. So what does God send them? Does He send them the judge? No. He sends them a prophet. This is the first time God has sent them a prophet instead of just dealing with the situation. Why? Because they're treating God like the vending machine. They're treating God like the genie. They're treating God as if he's a method. Oh, okay, so we couldn't do it, so now we, we go through the process of calling out to God, and God will save us. But God sends him, sends them the prophet. And what does the prophet tell him? prophet tells him the exact same thing that the angel of the Lord told him in chapter 2, which was, God saved you from oppression in Egypt. He brought you into this land. You're not supposed to be worshiping other gods. You're in, basically saying you're in this situation because of your own sin. That's why you're here, and you're compounding that sin. That's why the prophet's here. Remember, what's the main job of a prophet? To call people back to God. That's the main job of the prophet. The prophetic, right, that we talked about, the future stuff, is the, if you don't, this is going to happen. That's the prophetic. The prophet's first job is, come back to God, because you're in sin. Alright? And that's what we see this, this prophet do, does. And so then, so we have that, right? So that's part one. Part two now is God's going to save them. Because what's the theme of Judges? Even when we're unfaithful, God is still faithful. So the people, even in their sin, this is why I love, uh, what is it, Romans 5.8? While we were yet sinners? Is that right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? Yeah. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's that say? While we're unfaithful... God is still faithful. Alright? So, even while Israel is unfaithful in this moment, even when he sends them a prophet to say, hey, get your act together, 
God is still working at that moment. There's no, and later on, it's the prophet comes, angel of the Lord shows up. Like, it's just, it's like in sync. As the prophet's coming, here's the angel of the Lord coming. There's no, there's no sense of time in this. It's just the prophet comes, but the angel of the Lord's working, but he's not working in the grandiose. He's working on this one guy named Gideon. And so we switch gears and we go very specific to Gideon. And where do we find Gideon? He's in one of those caves. He's hiding out. And so when the Lord shows up, there's some tongue-in-cheek here. He says, Oh, mighty man of valor. And it's, it's a two-part thing here. One is, you're scared in, at night in this cave. Man, you're courageous. Is he? No, he's a scared little kid. But it's also... I'm going to have courageous work for you. It's two parts. Right now, in this moment, you are not courageous. You are not a man of valor. But you will be. But what does Gideon have to do to be a man of valor? Go to God. He has to follow what God says. So right now, he's doing his own thing, right? And he's not a man of valor. But if he follows God, he will be. This is the same thing that we see in Joshua 1. You know, that famous verse that everyone quotes, Joshua 1, 9. Be strong and courageous. Have I not told you, be strong and courageous. Right? You know that verse is preceded with, meditate on my word. Like, you can't be strong and courageous without God. Not the way God has it. Because you know the difference. Someone can walk in and be courageous in the sense of they can stand in front of a bullet and take it. That's what we pay bodyguards for. But it's very different to lay down your life for someone that doesn't give a rip about you. And that's what God calls His people to. Because that's what God does. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's because humanity didn't give a rip about God. And yet God laid down His life for us. And then He's calling us to do the exact same thing. So you get this sense, the angel shows up, and remember, this is the Lord. Because in verse 14, if you're, you know, we've talked about this before, that the angel of the Lord is a theophany. It's the, it's the pre-incarnate Jesus, and it's the Word of God showing up. We talked about this before, but if you're still not converse, uh, convinced, verse 14 says, and the Lord, so it's talking about the angel of the Lord, and it says, and the Lord turned. To Gideon. That word Lord is Yahweh. So it's saying, and Yahweh, right there, right then, turns to Gideon. Alright? So you have God right there doing the work. And what's interesting, before this, what was the last time we saw him? The angel of the Lord. Back in chapter 2. So none of the other judges, as far as we know, as far as the information we're given, have been in this situation with the angel of the Lord. He showed up before the judges. But you know what the angel of the Lord told him back in 2? I brought you out of Egypt. 
to take this land. But you turn away from me. What did the prophet say? God brought you out of Egypt to take this land, but you turned away from him. And now the angel shows up and says, Gideon, man of valor. Right? What's Gideon's response? There, he's got a couple of them. The first one is he accuses God. He starts out with accusing God. God, if, if you're really for us, why is it that we're in this situation? Because it, and this is the implication there, the underlying thing. Because it must not be our fault. What did you do to allow this? Well, we already know what the situation is, right? It's because of their sin. That's why they're in the situation. But Gideon doesn't see that. And he says, why have you allowed this? And then he says, and this is kind of taking the angel of the words, Lords, and taking the prophet's words and kind of turning them back on the angel of the Lord, back on to God. And he says, where, basically, where is all that stuff we've heard about in the past about how God brought us out of Egypt? Why isn't he doing that today? Now, here's the thing. We just went through Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, and Barak, right? We just went through them. And we went through Shamgar. Now, if you remember that, that map, where's Gideon? Yeah. You have, okay, so all that's going on down there. And then you have Shamgar. What this lets us know that this is, these stories are going all over. Israel. So Gideon's one of two things when he asks this question. Either he's willfully not telling the truth about hearing how God has done great things, or two, he's just ignorant and he doesn't want to hear it. He has this, this thing, why aren't you doing miracles right now type of attitude. I want the evidence right now, God. And he doesn't say... Oh, but I've heard that you've done these in other places. No, he says, way back when, using those words of the prophet, using the words of the angel at the very beginning, and saying, God, you did good stuff back then. Why can't you do that now? Back in 2011, there was this, um, this atheist, his name is Sam Harris, and he was having this debate with a Christian apologist by the name of William Lane Craig, and they were doing this at Notre Dame. And he said this thing in his final, you know, if you're in a debate, you have a final um, kind of argument that you give. And this is what he said in it. He says, if you lived 2,000 years ago, there was evidence galore performing miracles, but apparently God got tired of being so helpful. He has the same attitude as Gideon. Well, apparently, God, you did something back then, but you're not going to do anything today. The problem was, Gideon didn't realize God was working all over Israel. Working up in the north, working in the south, working in the central area. Gideon, either one, was willfully not paying attention and lying to God, or two, just didn't want to hear it. That's the situation. So you get to Gideon, and this guy, he's not good at this point. He's scared. He's mistrusting of God. And then 
when God says, I'm going to send you, what's the next thing he does? I'm from a really small town. I'm from a small clan from the least in my father's house. Basically, I'm, you know, and people compare this with Moses. Where Moses is like, I have a, I can't speak. I can't get in front of people, you know, and get, Moses goes through this whole thing. Except Moses, his problem wasn't so much mistrust of God where Gideon's is. Gideon's trying to make all these excuses. Why? Because he's in this, his own sin. And so after that, God's like, I'm going to send you. And then what happens? Gideon says, well, let me make you some food, right? Let me make you some food. But see, here's the thing. Does God need food? Is that what he's seeking? No, what is he seeking? The obedience, the belief, the trust. But Gideon's treating him like the idols of the other nations. You would bring them food for their favor. You would do things for them. And God's like, I just want you to listen and do. And he's like, just wait here, I'll go get some food. And you can almost hear the exasperation. I'll stay around. Like God says, I'll stay around. As if like he leaves and he's gone. But he waits. He brings them this food. And what, what I don't know what Gideon's planning here. What does he think is going to happen? Well, whatever he thinks, it doesn't happen. Because the angel of the Lord says, put it on the rock. Okay? Now cover it with that broth that you brought. This will happen again, very similar, in Kings. Uh, first Kings? Second Kings. 19 with Elijah. Elisha. Yeah. First Kings. Where he says, where Elijah then says, make the altar. Let's put some water on that. But in this time, it's just a small little thing. Angel, put that food on that rock. He does. Put the broth on. And then he consumes it with fire. There's two things I think that's going on right there. Is One, I don't need your food. Two, see how I just burned that up? Get in line, Gideon. Because after that, Gideon gets fearful. Like, listen, this is what he says. And there's a little, a little clue right here. He says, alas. Just that little word, alas. Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He's scared. And in that one word, alas, it's implied I'm going to die. You know how we know that? Because of what the angel of the Lord says. It says, but the Lord said to him, now the angel's gone, right? The Lord says now, peace be to you. Tells him, Shalom, peace. You're not going to die. Right? But there's a, there's a certain clarity in Gideon's his statement, alas. Because Gideon doesn't know God. He knows of Him. He knows of Yahweh. 
but he doesn't know him. Because if he knew him, he would have said, okay, I need to walk in obedience. I need to go do what God's going to have me do. And he's going to give me the strength because he's sending me. But Gideon's thought is, I'm going to die now. Because I just met God. And he doesn't realize, no, you met God for purpose. And God has purpose now for you. And next week, we'll start talking about that purpose. But that's the thing is, what, what we see here is this mistrust of God and the self-reliance attitude that gets compounded, that compounds the disobedience that's already happening. We see the disobedience of Israel, and then from Gideon we see this mistrust of God. And it's just compounding on God, on, on the people of Israel. And the thing is, is usually there's two ways to experience suffering. And the one that we keep seeing with Israel is from their own sin. They're experiencing suffering because of their own sin. There's another form of suffering, which is suffering through following God. Both are suffering, but the end results are two different things. One is suffering for suffering. The other one is blessing that we talked about last week. And so in 1 Peter, you get something like this. 1 Peter 2.20, it says this, For what credit is, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Basically what Peter is saying, what's, good, what's the point of suffering and getting more suffering from it? What's the point? It's a rhetorical question. It's, there is no point. Just if you do something, if you do something sinful and you get suffering from it, what's the purpose of that? Nothing. It's just suffering. But Peter goes on and says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Gideon has a choice here. Do I continue in suffering and I'm just going to suffer for it? Nothing's going to come about it. Or do I do what God says? And there might be some suffering there, but there's a blessing through the suffering. And so, yeah, so obedience in either one. But the big thing is that God wants us to understand is at the end of that, that blessing from God, there is peace through it. That's the shalom, the peace. So God wants us to experience peace even in suffering. So there's, um, I don't know if you've ever read um, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Okay, there's, there's an updated one that happened in like late 2000s or early 2000s called um, Jesus Freaks. It's by a group called DC Talk. And they put together, basically it's a Fox Book of Martyrs except outdated. And there was a story, the one story that really stood out to me through that whole book was there was this man, I believe it was, it was either in Cambodia or Vietnam, and he is arrested and he's brought in to this um, prison. And it's a prison far worse than anything that you could probably imagine. And this guy's punishment was his guards would go and defecate in the, um, the toilet. And then they wouldn't... I mean, they didn't care how they did it. 
They would just have all the guards go through, you know, and use that toilet, and then have this man go in and clean it. And what they would do, just to add insult to injury, is they would take his Bible and they would rip out pages for their toilet paper. And so the story comes out of that, this guy's being interviewed. And he says, isn't that disgusting? Isn't that horrible? He goes, no. Because you know what I do? I take off all that poop, and now I have my Bible back. And he collected all those pieces of the ripped up scriptures. And that's what got him through all those issues, all that time. There is blessing through the suffering. There is peace through all that horribleness. But without God, there'd be no purpose. And so, this is what Jesus says in John 20, 21. He says, Peace be with you. The same God who said to Gideon, Peace, says it to his disciples right now. He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And, you're going to, and he tells them, he's told them earlier, you're going to suffer, you're going to be slandered, you're going to get hurt. He tells one um, group, they're like, we'll, we'll be with you till death. And he's like, you're going to drink from the same cup as me. You are going to suffer. You are going to die. And every one of them walked that with peace. That's crazy stuff. But that's what God is saying to us. So, what are we called to then? All right? We're called to experience that peace as well. And that peace gets applied when we apply God's Word. So when we have God's Word in our lives, when we're studying it daily, when we're going through it, when we're memorizing it, when we're applying it, then we start experiencing peace. Because remember that, that everyone likes to say, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. It starts with God's Word in verse 8. So we need to start applying that. Why do we have all the social, societal problems? It's because the church doesn't apply the Word of God. Why do people say, Christian, hypocrite? We don't apply the Word of God to our own lives. Because here's something that we've tried to teach our kids, my kids, my my, my own kids, is you can't fix other people. You can't. Like, you, you can influence other people, but you can't make them do something. So what do you, in the sphere that God is giving you, what do you have? You have you. And when Christians bow before the Lord and say, Lord, change me, that's the biggest thing. I can't change that person over there. You know, there are people I talk to, there are people I... Um, I pray with or people that I see on TV and I'm like, man, if I could just smack that person in the head and get them to do things right, it would never happen. So God has given me a, a sphere of influence and that sphere starts with me. If I'm not laying my life down and saying, Lord, change me, I should never expect someone else, especially someone in sin. Someone who doesn't know God? We talked about this before. Someone who lives their life complete in darkness has no idea what light is until light is shined. And so what do we need to be? Shining lights in darkness. How do we start with that? 
obedience. That's where it starts. So this is a verse that I use in marriage counseling and in um, uh, weddings. It's verse, I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's kind of an obscure one. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's kind of an obscure verse, all right? Listen to just four, verse 4 and 7, 4 through 7. This is what it says. Love is patient and kind. How many of us need a little more patience and a little more kindness? Love does not envy or boast. How many of us have envied or boast? Envied at someone else's thing or boasted about our own thing? It is not arrogant. It's not rude. Anyone have those problems? It it does not insist on its own way. That's really hard. Bless you. I had a, um, a teenager, and some of you might know her. Her name was Nikki. Um, and Nikki came to me one time. She was on our leadership group. Came to me one time, and she said, Man, I just wish I could get all these people to do what I want them to do. Because she was the president of her school at the time. And I said, That's, That is the problem every leader has. That you want to just make people do what you want and insist on your own way. I said, but you know, as leaders, we have to build people up and help them learn their own giftings and then utilize, it's your job as a leader to find their giftings, utilize them in the way that they should go. You know, there's a proverb, you might have heard it, where it says, um, train up a child in the way they should go and they will not depart from it. Heard that? I was listening to a, a Jewish man one time and he was saying, it's not just any training. It's the training in which they should go. Not the training you want them to go. The training they should go. So it does not insist on its way, own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Irritable, I have that down pat. <laughs> of all these, irritable, man. The slightest thing for me. This is so... Or resentful. Ever been resentful of something someone said or someone did? It does not rejoice at the wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, even if it's a truth that hurts. Even if it's a truth I don't want to hear, I rejoice in truth, not in wrongdoing. But this is the thing I think that is the hardest thing. Love bears all things. Believes all all things. You know how hard it is? I've, I've had people stand in front of me and lie to my face. And you know what I tell them? Okay, I believe you. Because I, I'm giving them that, that rope to hang themselves. No. Um, I am giving because I want them to understand that, okay, the way you're treating me, I'm not going to treat you. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to deride you because I could just rip you apart right now. I want to believe what you tell me. And when it comes to light, I had this years ago. I, um, we were, I was, um, I had an internship at this church and I was just helping out. And every single Sunday, every single Sunday, I was there for, I think, eight months. The, um, the music leader a lady would get up there and she would say the same thing every single month. 
your sins will find you out. I mean, every single week, it was weird. We moved away down to, that was up in Reading. We moved down to um, Roseville. And within four months of us leaving, she ran off with the pastor. And I thought, your sins will find you out. But it was weird. Because, and that's the thing. So I can, I, if someone tells me something, okay, I believe you. Because if it's not true, your sins will find you out. I don't have to call you out on it. Sometimes God has us do that, but sometimes it's just, hey, your sins will find you out. I don't have to, I don't have to be that person. It hopes all things. So it believes all things. Why? Because it hopes all things. I hope you're telling me it's true. I hope this, what you, this truth is true. Because it doesn't affect me. When someone lies to me, yeah, it hurts. But that's because there's deeper issues going on there. And I can't fix them. And it endures all things. All the pain, all the hurt, all things. Not just some things, not just when convenient things, all things. If we in this congregation just took those three verses... And we said, God, transform me just in these three verses. How vastly different would we be in one year? If we said, God, if that was our prayer, God, 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, transform me. And we, we just said, God, for a year, that's my prayer. How different we would all be in a year. Right? So my challenge for you is this, is to take Judges, do I, do I have one more? Did I skip something? No, we're good, okay. Sometimes, man, I just think. So my challenge for you is very simple. Read Judges 6, 1 through 24. See what's going on in the passage. And then have a prayer of, Lord, if I'm hiding, if I'm running away from something, if I'm mistrusting you, am I, if I'm compounding my own sin on top of it and I'm going to have suffering because of it, Lord, do something right now. Transform me. Change me. Do something. If there's something I said, if there's something I did that would hurt relationship, Lord, Bring me down. Bring me out of my suffering. Let me forgive me, Lord. Let me seek to be forgiven by someone else. That's what God's calling to us. So I want to challenge you this week to just go as you're reading through, God, am I mistrusting you? Am I, have I done something that's in disobedience to you? that you would not want me to do what I've been doing. Lord, take care of that. Let's, let's deal with it today. Because that, just like unrighteousness has ripple effects that goes from us to our family to society, righteous acts, obedient acts, has ripple effects too. The only difference is those ripple effects are a lot slower 
because those bigger waves have already been out there. But when they hit, they hit hard. Because a transformed life, I've had people tell me, like, from when I was younger, man, you're really different. Like, yeah, it's because of Jesus. Because if I, if I didn't have him, guess what? I'd be worse off than you. I have a bunch of buddies that did some dumb stuff with. And every single one of them, only one of my friends from when I was younger has, knows Jesus. Only one. All of the other ones are suffering. I see them, all the, I see them on their Facebook. One's in jail. One just got out of jail. One, he, the best of us, the most, the, no, I, the, not, I don't want to say cool, because he wasn't, uh, the, the most obedient child to his parents, while I was in college, murdered a woman. Only one other guy that I know, when I, from my young years, knows Jesus. And he went through a lot of suffering. And now, he just had his second baby. And I just saw him on Facebook. His name's Sean. Saw him on Facebook. And he's like, with the kids at church. It's a great day. It's made me smile. So, brothers and sisters, let's not mistrust God. Let's not be self-reliant. Let's seek the forgiveness and the movement of God in our own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know it's really easy, as I've done it a lot, to where I just fall into these, these habits of just doing my own thing without even consideration of what you would have me do. And those plans usually go to junk because I'm not strong enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough to have them go the way you would have them. So Lord, for myself, before my brothers and sisters, just for myself, Lord, take my eyes off myself. Put my eyes on you where they are supposed to be. Lord, I ask for my brothers and sisters in here that this week you've moved tremendously in their lives. That they would walk more obedience than they did last week. If there are things going on, hurts or pains or brokenness that needs to be dealt with, Lord, that they would be willing to have that dealt with. Don't let them hide in any caves or build their own strongholds to try to do it themselves. Lord, let them confess, be forgiven, and be brought before you. So, Lord, just ask this in your Son's precious name that we might move, not in our own strength, but your own. Amen.